across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The week continues to become more and more ridiculous. Yesterday afternoon, the government announced that London would move into Tier 3 later on tonight, leaving thousands of restaurants and pubs bereft. Thousands of places where expensive food and drink has been stockpiled for the Christmas season. Thousands of places that employ many more thousands of people. Thousands of places that are the lifeblood of this country, where thousands of people meet to talk, to congregate and to enjoy themselves safely. My question this morning is this. What has Boris Johnson got against these establishments? What has he got against the great British habit of eating and drinking? And why does he have it in for thousands of people who make their living out of serving other people food and drink. Once again, I say this, this is nothing to do with anybody's ability or wanting to go out and uh, get smashed. It's got nothing to do with people wanting to enjoy themselves. This is all about a business which is the lifeblood of this country, which contributes billions and billions and billions of pounds of tax revenue into the government coffers. And yet, for some reason, Downey Street seems to hate hospitality. Is it because they have no clue about ordinary people? Is it because they have no clue about what people actually want to do in this country? Is it because they are so out of touch with the common man and woman of this country that they simply don't care? It's all based on supposed data, right, from PCSR tests, which are questionable at least and wrong at worst, right? Can we please just get some proper scientific analysis of what is going on out there? Just because a couple of parts of London are seeing so-called increases uh, of positive tests in schools, there is absolutely no need to shut down one of the biggest and most important cities in the world, because that, ladies and gentlemen, is precisely what has happened. If you're affected by this latest madness, please do get in touch. We need to hear from you. 0344... 499-1000. Last night's media briefing from the increasingly unconvincing Matt Hancock included the nonsensical notion that GPs are now able to give out the COVID vaccine when that is clearly optimistic at best and wrong at the worst. Doctors are already complaining that they have had to cancel appointments because the vaccine simply didn't arrive. Other doctors have said the government red tape is strangling their ability to carry out tests in order to release people from quarantine. We heard that from Lawrence Gerlis yesterday. We'd love to get the Secretary of State for Health on to answer our questions, but so far we haven't really had any luck, unfortunately. I wonder whether Matt Hancock only thinks it's okay to talk to the press and talk to the media sometime before sort of 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, I'm sorry, mate. You need to talk to us all day and every day, and you need to justify what it is that you're doing and what the basis of your doing it is 0344-499-1000. We'll be talking to restaurant owners. We'll be talking to brewery managers and other hospitality industry people as well. And we'll get the latest on Brexit too. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us kick things off immediately with Professor Carol Sakura, former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Uh, Carol, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. The uh, the papers this morning full of the sort of two stories, I suppose, which yeah. are the most important ones. One, uh, this new strain of coronavirus, which frankly doesn't appear to be worth the paper it's written on. And secondly, uh, the tier three lockdown for London, which also, I'm afraid, doesn't appear to be backed up by any sort of serious health uh, and safety data. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm with you on both those. Let's take the mutation. Viruses mutate. We know that. 
That's not the significant feature. This virus mutated way back in April. Uh, throughout the world, it changed one of its building blocks, its amino acids on that spike protein that children like growing. Um, and it, it didn't really change its behavior at all. It changed again in, in the last month. One amino acid, that's the building block of a protein, changed for another at position 501. So what, as you say? Uh, I think it was thrown in by Matt Hancock to sort of try and justify yeah. what he's doing with tier three, which is crazy. You can't use that to justify it. But it's scary to think these mutants are out there. You imagine these old science fiction films and mutants coming down the street for you, you know, the stuff of nightmares. It's not like that at all. As for the data, I mean, you know, I look at the data every day, the government data. They put it on, a, on coronavirus.data.gov and you look it up. And it is pretty poor. First of all, it's not timely. It doesn't mm. come up at four o'clock every day. It does sometime. Secondly, there's a huge weekend effect. The data just gets completely messed up. So it's no coincidence that the total number of people said to be in British hospitals is the same for Saturday, Sunday, and Friday. I mean, it can't be that they're exactly the same to the nearest one patient. They've got to have changed over the weekend. And, and yet that's not recorded for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the only justification for increasing the stringency of control of us is if the hospitals can't cope. Yeah. And at the moment, when you look at the data, it's flat line. It's not going up significantly. There are about 12% of all hospital beds in the NHS throughout the UK are occupied by COVID mm. patients. That's all we can say. But it's winter. That's what happens every winter. Patients with all sorts of chest disease, mainly older patients that fail antibiotics in the community, they come into hospital and they're there. So what's different this year? And, you know, that's the problem. Are we making too much of a fuss? I really sympathize with the guys in the rest in the hospitality business. You know, my daughter works in it and it's a complete mess. Yeah. Uh, well, I was so saying, I was just saying to Julia, I was in a restaurant yesterday afternoon um, having a business meeting with somebody, very important meeting, very important lunch. And the people that were around me, I thought to myself, these poor people who work in that business, right? Most of them were obviously Europeans. They spoke with accents, you know, they were all very good. But all the people that were waiting, all the people that were behind the bar, everyone there was obviously on a relatively low wage, uh, but they were doing their best to work their way through whatever it was that they needed to do. And I thought to myself as I walked out, I said, I really feel sorry for you guys because you know, tomorrow you're going to close and you don't even know when you're going to be able to make any money again. And a lot of these guys don't get money unless they do something. Right. I mean, it's a gig economy out there for them. It's all right for the public sector, uh, the epidemiologists sitting in their nice lectureships in universities for their nice pensions to mm. come make the rules. Same for the politicians. Uh, but these guys are at the rough end of it. And it's not just them. It's all sorts of service workers in the city that... So, you know, every industry has another one behind it that needs people to, to service it. So the number of jobs that are going to go over this most incredible, incredibly busy period for the hospitality industry, you know, I'd just love to see the data. And if you ask for the data, it's as though you're, you, you know, you're doing something naughty in church. And yeah. You're asking 
if you believe, does God really exist in the church? You know? Well, that's right. It's, and this is the thing. If you don't believe it or you ask questions about it, you're immediately castigated as some kind of, you know, demon uh, who must obviously follow some mad conspiracy theory. Absolute nonsense and rubbish. And the more I watch Chris Whitty and the more I see of the way that these people actually roll out some of the information they give us, the less actual confidence I have in the fact that they're telling the truth. Chris Whitty looks increasingly to me like some kind of weird, odd character uh, who's never actually stepped out of his house ever to do anything other than, you know, to stroke a tortoise or something. I mean, he's a very odd looking guy. Oh, well, that, that, that's not his fault, but he's, you know, he's, he's actually a very good uh, public health guy. Is the, he? The, Probably, what's, well, your think, ev- what's your evidence for that? Well, with, with Ebola fever. This is not, of course, Ebola fever. That's where he cut his teeth on, on, on epidemiology. Well, I did. don't remember uh, being threatened by Ebola in South London, no, you know, a few, a few, uh, a few uh, years uh, ago. And he seems to think that this is just as bad. Uh, that is the problem. They've taken it to heart and they're going on. Uh, but the numbers are not going up. They went down on the 2nd of December. Yeah. And it, as though we were out of it on the 2nd of December, which would have saved all this. Instead, they've started going up again, but they're plateaued. So let's, you know, I, I can't believe they went in so quickly. And it was a typical way of doing it. Drop the information over the weekend that maybe we will, the little hints that we yeah. could do. And suddenly the virus is mutating. Oh, crikey, better batten down because the storm is coming. Right. And then the next thing you know, midnight tonight, that's it, finished. Restaurant shop. Yeah, and 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 in 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 other situations when these decisions have been made, the restaurant businesses and the pubs have said, "Okay, uh, you've given us a few days; we'll deal with it." Today, they're saying we've got all this stock, you know, because we thought we were yeah. going to be open for Christmas, and we've got all this stuff that we can't now sell, which is perishable. It, it, it is ridiculous. And, you know, I get my turkey from Smithfield every year on Christmas Eve. I'm just hoping I can still go. Right. Uh, order one and I better go around the supermarket and get them and put it in the freezer mm. in case. Yes. But, but I, I think it is just so sad for people that have adapted so well. And that's the one thing I full of praise. Everywhere I go, people have done tremendous lengths to adapt to some of the very silly rules that are out there, including who can and can't dine with each other in a restaurant. Mm. I mean, made to sit with with five work colleagues i went for a, a snack a, a substantial snack you must understand but no alcohol at lunchtime and we had to sit on separate tables there were five of us sitting on separate tables shouting at each other right. across the restaurant uh with a scampi and chips i mean it, it was just the most ridiculous scene uh, you know and, and th- that's the trouble with this it's, it's getting the evidence and th- there's very little evidence at stake here right and then of and also, and also, the only thing you can conclude, presumably, is that the tier two situation, which London was in until um, uh, we change it tonight, um, <clears throat> somehow didn't work. That, that's right. Does tier three really bring any benefits over tier two? I mean, the, the aim is to reduce social contact. That's the ultimate aim. So everything, all the little things, the, the closure time at 11 o'clock, the, uh, in Wales, the most ridiculous thing where you have the pubs are allowed to open till six, but they're not allowed to serve any booze. Right. I mean, this is just wonderful. Imagine a, a little Welsh villager comes into his pub wanting his pint of bitter and uh, absolutely no chance. He gets a pint of lemonade instead. He's not going to go back the next day. I think that's that's the problem is understanding how people behave. It seems that these politicians don't have a clue. And it's, it's a bit worrying that this the case at at this late stage in the pandemic. 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, one of the things that I've been saying as well about all of these politicians is that they are not just governed by scientists. I mean, I discovered over the weekend that SAGE is packed full of what uh, is uh, remarkably sort of referred to as social psychologists, people who are behavioural scientists. I mean, they're not like you. They're not medical people. They don't have a clue about what medical uh, things are good and bad. But what they are good at is making up uh, ridiculous theories about how people will behave depending on what you tell them. Social psychology is a fascinating business. I never understand it because it doesn't have much evidence base all the time. You know, if you have cancer and you give a drug and the cancer shrinks, you've got an X-ray, you've got a a, a marker in the blood, perhaps you can see what's happening. But in psychology, there's nothing to follow. And, And so people get theories. And that's what's happened. You're right. Sage is dominated by well meaning and uh, experienced psychologists that want to change. It's a sort of psychops. Can we change the, the way, the mindset of the British people? Right. And I well, think excuse find- me. Well, before you go any further, uh, Carol, excuse me, nobody gave them that right. Nobody asked them to no. change the the, 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 the the mindset of the British people. That's not what we voted for. That's not what we had elections for. We do not wish to be bullied uh, and cajoled into thinking in a particular way just because a bunch of bozos uh, who are paid by the public purse think we should. <laughs> That's an extreme version, right? but I sympathise with it. I yeah. really do. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, they're sitting from a position of comfort, job, security, pension, all these things. No one's going to fire them uh, tomorrow because the restaurant owner decides he's going to call it in and say, I'm packing up for the rest of the year. In fact, I'm packing up forever because this is never going to pay. I'm never going to pay the, the, the debt on the rent. I'm just locking up and throwing the keys, leaving the keys behind. That's what's going to happen to a lot of places. There's no, there's no alternative when you do this. And, you know, the vaccine program, it'll roll out much slower than we, we think think it will for a variety of reasons and as we move forward um, businesses will reconstruct themselves and that that's what will happen but a lot of people will lose out and a lot of effort will have been wasted yes but also the thing the overriding kind of principle of all of this right is that none of it actually works because if any of it did work we would be out of it by now. But all of these lockdowns, all of these kind of measures, all of these um, closing of hospitality businesses has not actually stemmed the flow of the disease. In fact, they're now telling us, oh, it's now mutated. There's a new disease. Uh, So actually everything we did before was a complete waste of time. There's no doubt that the evidence that going between the tiers, it does show some minimal change. But the the most important thing is just dampening down social contact in any way possible. Uh, And the only way to do that is if you really want to do it properly, you've got to do it with military style. And that's what other countries have. Asia did a Singapore, fantastic military style, shut down Korea, uh, other countries, Vietnam, these countries, they know how to do it. Uh, you know, even in the Gulf, which, uh, again, a crackdown on people really forced into isolation. Here, we've dabbled in it. And, you know, going from tier two to tier three doesn't really make a big difference as far as I can see. But it causes a lot of unpleasantness and a lot of suffering. Yeah, because really the only difference between two and three at this moment in time is hospitality, isn't it? Because everybody else uh, is going to keep the gyms open. They're presumably going to keep the hairdressers open. They're going to keep everything open that they have done in other parts of the country where tier three is involved. So the only reason to do it is to stop people going out 
uh, and having a good time before Christmas. And it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. There is no evidence still, I don't think, uh, Carol, uh, that, that it spreads in bars and restaurants anyway. No, there's very little evidence. Very little evidence it spreads in planes. And, you know, that's that's the place I'd be most worried. But there's no evidence base that, uh, sure, if you sit next to someone that's hot with COVID, it's more likely you'll pick it up. But the evidence that aeroplane travel and overseas travel actually is increasing the risk of you getting COVID is pretty small, yeah. which is surprising, perhaps, because there you are confined in a, in a metal tube, basically, for several hours. And yeah. yet no evidence of it so what's the difference when you go to a restaurant uh in in the, in the nice part of london no exactly right now let's talk about the vaccine because there's a few problems that i'd like to address with you um i spoke to some friends of mine over the weekend who told me that uh, they work in the nhs and they weren't normally going to get the vaccine however they ended up getting it because people who were supposed to be given it um missed their appointments, didn't show up, um, and so they started giving it out to but more or less anyone. I spoke to Dr. Uh, Lawrence Gerlis yesterday, who said, if you were at Guy's Hospital last week, uh, you could have got a free vaccine, basically, because they had so many of them and not enough people to give them to. Uh, similarly, we're told that the doctors, I mean, this is another Matt Hancock, uh, shall we say, um, uh, I don't know if I want to say he was being economical with the truth, but he was he was boasting about the fact that GPs are now giving out the vaccine, uh, where clearly many of them are not able to do so because of either red tape or because they don't have it. Yeah. So this sort of thing is, is, is bedevils our system, and it because there's so many, it's a divided system. You've got the primary care system, the GPs, you've got secondary care, that's the hospitals, and then the agencies that deal with things. Mm. Uh, uh, the problem is, you think it, you've, they've had six months to make up a list of the category one people, people over 70, people frontline in the NHS, make a list and just get it done. It's not difficult, you think. You can bring in the army for distribution. Yeah. You know, you don't need a doctor to administer the vaccine. All you need, you don't need a nurse even. You need healthcare assistant, someone that's trained for a day to give injections mm. can do it the easy bit they do need to be in a medical environment because people can go wrong i mean they can have two people already have had a yeah uh, what's an anaphylactic shock yes. type they say so you've got to have doctors around and nurses around and so on so that's all you need and people need to have a place to sit maybe have a cup of coffee for a half an hour so they don't rush out so after half an hour it's unlikely they'll have any serious effects so that's the plan but the trouble is the logistics behind that there was a lot of argy-bargy about who's paying for it and gps are very good at negotiating payment schemes yeah. much better than hospitals and uh, uh it was going to be 12 pound 50 when it first was booted and i'm sure uh 12 pound 50 per patient they would do the, the shop, basically, and supervise the administration of the shop. I think part of the problem is getting the lists together, getting the patients in the place. And then the thing that's annoyed my colleagues is that where's the vaccine? Yeah. So everything's organized. The chairs are there. The church hall is rented. Let's get the, the, the vaccine. And nothing arrives in a box. Yeah. And then you're stuck. And you have to send people home. The, va the vaccine comes the next day. The patients have gone. Let's give it to people that uh, want it, that are out there now, staff and so on. And that's what's happened. Well, we've got one GP in Southport cancelling 128 appointments, right? We've got another one uh, in Kent cancelling 80 vaccination appointments because they simply don't have the vaccine. Also, if they get the vaccine, uh, they have to be able to administer it within a, a, a very, relatively short period of time because if it's out in the open and it's too hot, it doesn't work. 
yeah, it's a, the, one of the, the, the downsides of the Pfizer vaccine, minus 80, and it, it can only last a few hours outside that environment. Um, the Oxford one, if it gets a license, which I assume it will next week, mm. uh, that's better. That could put in a normal fridge, and that's much better for developing countries. Uh, it's all a matter of logistics, Mike, and we're, we're not great at logistics. I think if the one thing you look back on the last six months, the thing that's been dreadful is the government's handling of logistics. They have a minister, and he seemed competent. I mean, I heard him speak. He sounds competent. And uh, it's, it's not rocket science immunising a population. It's really not. But they don't seem to be very good at very much, I'm afraid. I mean, it's very difficult. It would be easier to uh, to pin the tail on the donkey than to find something the government's actually any use at, you know? They seem to be completely and utterly useless at almost everything. But basically, here we are in this place where we knew we were going to be, and yet we are no better off. And it seems to me yeah. that they are being led by events rather than uh, judging the events and leading by example. And not only that, there will be problems with the vaccine. There always are problems. I mean, they don't come immediately. There'll be some side effects we haven't thought of. It'll be scarce. And are you confident that these are the guys that can lead you out of it? I'm, I'm not so sure. No. Um, the they seem to be able to organise when it comes to voting time. That's impeccably organised for some reason. You know how the people chase you up. They oh, get yeah. oh, they're very good at that. Uh, but when it comes to this, the logistics are not so cool. No, you're absolutely right. Professor Carol Sakura, thank you very much indeed, as ever, uh, for cutting uh, us some slack and actually telling us the truth, which we don't get from the government very often. 0344 499 uh, He's the former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. I want to hear from all of you out there, because if you know someone who's supposed to be getting a vaccine today from the GP... I need to know whether it's happening because it seems to me uh, that it is not happening in the way that it should. And quite simply, that is all down to the the complete and utter incompetence of this government. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Uh, Pete says this, I went to a bar at lunchtime yesterday which was virtually empty. I had a few beers by myself and my substantial meal was two rounds of toast. Hashtag madness. Well, it has been madness. And the idea that somehow, because we have seen an uptick in uh, the number of infections, largely due, of course, to school children actually passing it to each other in parts of London, uh, which are not anywhere near the centre... We have now shut down the entire capital city of this country, which to me is complete and utter madness. You cannot tell me that this is going to make any difference whatsoever to the spread of coronavirus. And the idea that Matt Hancock has now come out with this nonsense that, oh, there's a new strain which we weren't expecting, is absolutely misleading. I would say verging on absolutely and utterly disgraceful to try and make out that that's the reason why somehow we have to shut all the restaurants. Let's talk to James Chiaverini, director of Il Portico, which, of course, is London's oldest family-run restaurant over in Kensington High Street. James, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Nice to speak to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you, James. Um, I, I felt for you yesterday. I was actually in a restaurant in Borough Market when the news came through that they were going to go into Tier 3. Yeah. And I just thought to myself, what is the point? And, and, the, and, and, and the people that were all around me were all saying the same thing. You know, how on earth is this going to help anyone? Uh, all it's going to do is make your life miserable, make the people who work for you uh, lives miserable, and just basically, um, you, you know, you're being prevented from actually um, operating. We are, we are. But unfortunately, I mean, we were used to being the scapegoat of this pandemic this year. So, I mean, honestly, it's nothing new. 
Uh, we know that uh, hospitality industry is responsible for an incredibly low percentage of infections. We know that from the truck and trace system. Yeah. It's somewhere between one and a half and two percent of all infections. Right. So, I mean, it's really the science does not back up shutting down restaurants and bars. It's just that simple. No, but you're a very even-handed person, James, and I'm, I'm amazed at how even-handed you are. Because if I was you, I would literally be spitting mad. I'd be turning up at Downing Street with a, with a you know, a Land Rover and a cavalcade of people trying to burst through the doors to say, stop doing this to me. It would not surprise me if I switched on the news and saw you doing that, Mike, to be quite honest with you. No, but you know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're, you're incredibly calm about it, considering <laughs> that you're now going to... I mean, like, don't even, you don't even know when you can open now, do you? No, I don't. I think they're going to review it on the 23rd, which is what they said. But, I mean, that did come out of the mouth of Matt Hancock, so it does do need to be taken with a bottle. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know... I mean, the question is, is really, is do any of us have any confidence left in this administration? It's yeah. just that simple. And if the answer is a resounding no... Then we just need a, uh, you know, a, a good broom. Just come out and sweep the room clean, and we just need to get in there and, and start next year completely afresh. And we need a great reset. We need to look at the facts, and we need to have a common sense approach of what's working and what isn't working. And enough of this political posturing, because we know that shutting down hospitality is good, you know, is is good political move for the government because people, voters, it's popular with voters, not popular with me and you and our listeners, but the majority of voters are quite happy with that move, so long as the kids stay at school. But we know that that's not the reality. That's not going to. Yeah, but guess what? Actions. Guess where the where the spread is the worst in school. It's nothing to do. It's not happening in Portico. It's happening in the school down the road. I know, I know, and I totally agree with you. And the other problem is that whenever the schools break up, for example, or the private schools in central London, whenever they break up, there's always a surge in, in in infections. Because if you're a family of five and you want to go back to France or Italy or Spain or Switzerland for Christmas holidays once the schools finish. The first thing you're going to do is get all your family tested so you can get on an aeroplane. Right. And the chances are that one of you might be asymptomatic, normally a youngest kid with plenty of T-cells, so it's not, a, not an issue. So the infections are going to rise. But that doesn't mean that it's any more dangerous than it was six months ago. No. But that's um, the point. I mean, you put out a tweet yesterday saying you've got 24 hours to shift 7,000 quid's worth of stock. Right. Now, I'm sure there are other restaurateurs who are even in a worse position than you are. But yeah. what are you going to do about that? Well, get creative. I mean, we've got two restaurants. We bought a load of stock in for Christmas this week. We expected a really bonanza week. We had reservations through the roof because right. everybody was expecting the shutdown to come on the 19th. So lunch and dinner, back-to-back bookings for the whole week. So we thought, lovely, ordering a load of stock. And then that Wally in that bloody health department gives us 24 hours' notice. And you think, well, for crying out loud, I mean, yeah. we've had more ins and outs on these tears than the bleeding hokey-cokey. I know. You know I mean, this think? is the thing. I mean, have you even considered, and you're too nice, I'm sure, for this, but, you know, <laughs> you should be suing these people. Well, <laughs> I don't think that's going to get me very far, to be honest with you, Mike. Look, at the end of the day... I can put you in touch with some decent lawyers who will do it on a no-win, no-fee basis. <laughs> do you know what? I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of lawyers, with, a lot of people with no-win, no-fees coming out next year. And a lot of businesses are going to be rightly angry and a lot of businesses are going to look for some sort of content, um, compensation. And we know that insurance companies aren't stepping up to the plate. We know that they've, um, they've dodged and welched out of paying everybody. They've certainly dodged and welched out on paying mine. Right. And, you know, they're based out all out in Bermuda anyway, so they can just walk away from this and say, sue us in Bermuda, what are you going to do? But this is the thing. I mean, all these people, right, who go, oh, don't worry, you'll be able to just pick up your business. But literally, I mean, I don't want to labour the point, but you don't actually know. I mean, if I said to you, when can I book a table to come and have dinner with you, you can't tell me. I can't tell you, Mike, exactly right. I can't tell you until... Until the uh, to the oracle of uh, the office, I should say, at Delphi, there at the, at the health department, mm. lets us know where we can do it. And it 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 really is it's it's frustrating from a perspective that 
the government has done a lot of things right, especially with the with the economy in, in trying to stop the hemorrhaging of redundancies. It's doing its best, but it's just offset by a completely catastrophic uh, communication strategy, which which leaves businesses 24 hours notice, you know, to sort themselves out, and everybody just goes into a tailspin of a panic. You know, you've got, you've got basically, I've got today's lunch and today's dinner. I've got to get to as much stock as I can. I've got right. to try and switch to some sort of delivery business, if possible. And then, you know, and then I've got Christmas. But shaking my fist at the sky is not going to, frankly, pay my mortgage. It's not going to put food on my, on my table for sure. my three children. What is going to do that is, is, a, is a, a policy of strategizing, organizing, and planning well for the future. And, you know, come what may, it doesn't matter what the government says. In the restaurant business, it's for any small business, painters and decorators, electricians, plumbers, restaurants, all of your loyal listeners will all be in the same boat as me. We're well used to the government being nothing but an absolute hindrance to our lives. We're well used to the government just being just putting up obstacles to us, earning a living and, and supporting our family. And you know what? Par for the course. So they've done it again. Big deal. We'll keep on going. We'll keep on fighting. We'll keep on working. And it'll be us. It'll be us all the working people who fundamentally get this country back together next year, and it's not going to be those idiots in Whitehall. Well, let's hope that's true. <clears throat> but the problem is, James, is that, you know, people like yourself, who are the lifeblood, as I call it, uh, of many, many uh, industries in this country, because not only are you employing people and not only are you buying things, not only are you paying tax, but you're also allowing people to come to your establishment and actually behave like a human being. You know, Absolutely. actually, you know, I was in your place, what, last week? And it was great. It was, you know, noisy. It was it was busy. You were having people socially distanced. You were people on proper, you know, uh, tables, one far away from the other. And you had screens and all of that. I just don't understand what the government has got against hospitality. It's almost as though they've got some kind of um, death wish against you. <laughs> you yeah, know? I think somebody, I think a friend of my journalist said on Twitter he wondered if Boris Johnson was bitten by a restaurant as a child. Yeah. Honestly. Because there doesn't seem to be any, there's no logic to it. You know, there's no, as you say, there's no evidence to suggest that, that restaurants and bars are spreading the disease. There's nothing to say uh, that you shouldn't be able to continue to remain open and make the money that you can make and pay the taxes that you pay and employ the people that you employ. It's, it's, it's almost like they have some kind of a grudge against you. Yeah, which is crazy when you think that, you know, what a huge contributor we are to the nation's pension pot. Right. I mean, we employ, I think, 650,000 people in this country, down what we're saying, we're employed in the hospitality industry. I mean, that's an awful lot of people to leave behind. Yeah. You know, and also, you know, a lot of these people, restaurants are a very labour-intensive organisation. You've got a lot of people working behind the bar, on the floor, in the kitchen, in the back office. We employ an awful lot of people. As a small company, you employ maybe 10, 20, 30 people. Yeah. It's not unheard of. And, you know, and that adds up to an awful lot in the, rest, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the coffers of the Treasury. And the other thing that the Treasury would be minded to remember is that if we don't employ these people, who are going to employ them? Right. Because a lot of guys who work in this business, myself included, are sort of square pegs in round holes. We don't really fit in an office structure. We can't sort of retrain in cyber or whatever it is that the Department of Trade wants. Oh, yeah, that was great, wasn't it? Maybe, yeah. maybe your next job will be in cyber. Oh, yeah? Maybe my next job will be murdering somebody because I'm so f fed up with what you've done. I mean, here's the thing. In terms of yesterday, right, I was in a restaurant called Roast, which is here in uh, Borough Market. Everyone in there is a European, right? The waiters, yeah. the people at the front desk, the people behind the bar, they're all obviously here from other countries in Europe. Now, I said to them yesterday, I said, I'm really sorry that when I walk out of here today, I may not see you now for another two months. I know, I know, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? 
But, you know, I mean, onwards and upwards, Mike. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. We don't even know. They said that whether they're going to extend the VAT um, reduction. Right. This is that they, so for now, for the final quarter of the year, we pay 5% VAT, you know, which is great. Obviously, that's a big help to us. But, we, but I mean, if they're going to jack it back up to 20% again in January, yeah. well, a lot of places will just look at that and just say, well, do you know what? Why should I give away 20%? to the organisation that has done the most amount of harm to my business yeah. this year. Quite frankly, I'll jack it in. And not only when a restaurant closes down, it's not just that the, you know, the punters don't have anywhere to eat, it's that you can have 25 people out on the dole. It's and absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous. Down, everyone's going to close down. I've just, had a, I've just had a tweet here from, from a friend of mine, Pooch, uh, who used to put on some shows for us, right? He says, I've just had five Christmas gigs cancelled. He's a promoter, right? Last mm. year's turnover over 400,000 quid. This year, 7.5,000. That's 400,000 employed sound engineers, lighting engineers, musicians, venue fees, caterers and more. These people yeah. have had no work all year. It's absolute madness. Yeah. That's crazy. where we are. It- with these it idiots. is crazy, Mike. It absolutely is crazy. And, you know, mathematics is not an opinion. You know, you look at the cold, hard facts of redundancies that came out today, and that's the reality of, of where we are. You know, and that, that, that is the absolute reality. And that's not just the unemployment. You've also got to look at the other tolls of, of people who have mental health issues. Yeah. You have people who rely on community assets like pubs and restaurants in order to go out and socialise. You have people who may be a little bit more fragile. Uh, who need that support of their community around them. And if they don't have that support, they will withdraw, and it's very dangerous indeed. And we need to get ourselves back up and running. We need a community. We need a sense of us, a sense of the we, and the gathering points of all that traditionally in this country has always been local restaurants and always been local village pubs. And that is the absolute backbone Mm. of this of this, not just of this economy, but of this nation's mental health. We need to go out there, we need to mingle, we need to mix, we need to see our friends as quickly and as safely as possible. The government has got to pull their bloody finger out, get these vaccines out there, ASAP, so that we can get trading. You know, it is so imperative. I can't stress how important it is for people now, because otherwise, if this lockdown continues for much longer, you're going to see a big, big case and mental health issues, and nobody wants to see that. It's awful, absolutely awful. James, listen, my heart goes out to you. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I'll see you soon, hopefully, um, at some point or other, when you're able to open the restaurant again, which probably won't be until the new year. Uh, But if that's possible, I will be there, uh, and I'll be there supporting it. Because it's not about me having a great time going out for dinner. It's about supporting the industry, which is one of the backbones of this country. The idea uh, that somehow the government full of people who are on the public payroll, paid by us, by the way, people who are supposedly representing us are shutting our cities down, shutting our restaurants down, shutting our bars down. I've had enough of it. I'm sick to death of these people. And if Matt Hancock thinks that he can go around ordering me what to do, when to do it, how to do it, who to do it with, he can get stuffed and I'd quite like to fire him. That's coming straight from the horse's mouth here at the Independent Republican Mike Graham. 5 years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And we're going to talk now to Adam Curie, Managing Director of Camden Town Brewery, uh, who have been particularly um, agile at trying to continue to make money, trying to continue to make their products available to people. But it's very, very difficult. And I don't think that the government has taken into account enough of the worries of modern day businesses, particularly when it comes to the food uh, and drink sector. Adam, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for, for joining us. I mean, you guys have been quite innovative in terms of how you've been able to sort of deal with all the various slings uh, and arrows that have been thrown at you. Um, with this latest uh, lockdown, tier three, uh, what what are you doing? It, I mean, it definitely does feel like we're constantly under attack. Yeah. And I think kind of, it's been a huge challenge for the whole year for us. Um what are we doing at the moment? I mean, right now, where I guess we're reaching out to our customers and just trying to understand exactly where they're at. You know, one of the real challenges now with with the current sort of moving up to tier three or, or sort of pseudo lockdown as we're having is the, just the complete lack of preparation we've been able to have for it. Right. So, you know, as of Monday, you know, yesterday we had pubs you know, ringing up wanting to buy beer from us that would be delivered by the end of the week, and obviously now they're turning around and not wanting that. Right. But they're also turning around and saying, "Well, can you have? Can you take?" Uh, the beer back that we've got currently in our cellars. And that's one thing that we can potentially help with as a, as a business. But actually, you start thinking about all of these pubs that have just spent the last month trying to work out how to create substantial meals and make sure that they can sort of follow those lines. And again, they've now got freezers and fridges full of food that they're also throwing away. Pubs right now are in a huge amount of pain. And I think this uh, latest change in tiering, whilst I understand the absolute need to get kind of um, society safe again, um, it's really going to have a huge, huge impact on the industry. Yes. Well, I mean, listen, I think, Adam, we would all agree if it's just all about making people safe and saving lives and all of that, it would be understandable. And we would all go along with it, much like we did at the start of it in March and April when we didn't know very much about what was going on. But I think now, increasingly, um, we look at all the lockdowns that have already happened before and we're going, well, really? Are you sure that this is even going to work? I mean, that's the problem, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I do agree with you. I think, you know, kind of obviously we're seeing a spike of cases in London right now. Um, but actually, when you start mapping back of when those cases were probably um, trans- transmitted, it was most likely during the last lockdown yeah, when exactly. we didn't have pubs open. Um, and, you know, obviously there are data that is being tracked by the um, the ONS that are talking about kind of where transmissions are happening. And they rarely cite uh, the hospitality industry of having anything more than two or three percent mm. of transmissions. So it, it doesn't feel like hospitality is the problem. I, I obviously understand the the logical sense of, well, if people are socializing together, then that must be where uh, the virus can, could transmit. But I think what that does is that takes takes away all of the work that the hospitality industry have done to try and make sure that their venues are safe. So whether that's by spreading apart the tables more, increasing sanitization, you know, making sure they're doing the track and trace side of things. I think they're doing so many things that actually means that probably being in a pub and, and having a, 
a nice meal with your friends um, is a much safer thing to do than potentially being at home in the back garden right. um, with a bigger group. Of well, people. it does seem to me that if you're going to, as we are now doing in tier three, leave the gyms open, there are much like more likely places to catch it. Than, than anywhere else, really. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, uh, the, the, the virus can sort of stay on pieces of equipment, that it can stay on uh, various surfaces for quite some time, maybe 24 hours, maybe 72 hours, we're not sure. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I was in a restaurant yesterday. Uh, there were screens everywhere. You know, all the tables were distanced from one another. Uh, there was nobody at the bar. If you wanted to go to the bar, you had to put a mask on to walk there. You know, and, you know, it's about as safe as an environment as I could imagine. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think it's about regulated environments. So I'm sure that the gyms are doing you know, amazing things to make sure their equipment are safe as well. Um, but what you know, what you have is you have these regulated environments like pubs and restaurants that are do that that understand the virus, they understand how it's transmitted and therefore trying to do everything they can to contain it. Mm. Um, but you know, what we actually know is places like schools and places like homes are where kind of obviously people don't have the same level of skills and understanding and knowledge and they can't do that same regulation. Um, and so that's the real challenge. I don't think hospitality is adding to the problem. I, I think you know it can actually be part of the solution. Yeah. And as far as your business goes, Adam, I mean, you're a brewery, so presumably you have to ratchet back now on whatever your daily production would otherwise normally be. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, just going back in history, still feels so long ago, but at the beginning of the year, we started growing. We started the year, we were growing at 57%. So we had an amazing start to this yeah. year. We are now absolutely going to be in a loss. We will also be in a loss in terms of, you know, from a commercial perspective, in terms of money um, side of things. Um, and, and it's been hugely challenging trying to, to, I guess, second guess the decisions that the government are making and then also kind of work out how we can respond to that to, to limit that impact on our business. People probably miss, don't generally think about the fact it takes four weeks to make to brew a beer. Mm. So, you know, we're making decisions four weeks ahead of time. And of course, you know, four weeks ago, things were looking a little bit more optimistic. Um, we were heading into Christmas. Everyone had, I guess, some level of, okay, it's not going to be the Christmas we knew we, we normally have, but we'll have some Christmas. I think now we're all fairly resigned to a Christmas that won't have any, have or have very limited social interactions. Um, and so that means for us, we will we will be putting as much beer as we can into storing tanks. But fundamentally, ultimately, they will end up going down the drain. That's really sad, isn't it? And have you managed to sort of sell any cans or, 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 or beer sort of into supermarkets and stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, absolutely. Supermarket business is is booming for us and, and for anyone that's selling into that sector. Um, but I think when you look at the supermarket shelves, most of the, the beers on the supermarket shelves are made by the big four brewers. Uh, and so they're the ones that I guess had some really good gains out of that. A lot of the smaller, I don't necessarily include Camden in this, but a lot of the, the independent smaller brewers only sell to pubs and they are really struggling because they don't have those options. Um, and yeah, so in our case, our, our supermarket sales are up about um, double, so 100%. Right. Um, that still doesn't go anywhere near the losses of um, what we lose from having the pub sector closed. No, I mean, that is just dreadful, and I feel for, for, for you guys. And so uh, particularly without knowing when the end of it is, because this current Tier 3... We don't, I mean, all you know, right, is that on the t December the 22nd or the 23rd, uh, you're allowed to do some stuff with your family, supposedly, according to the government. But presumably for you guys, it's not really worth sort of winding in and winding up the whole production again for five days because people are going to be off. 
No, we're taking an approach now that um, we're not going to see any level of normality, anything kind of better than tier two until at least sort of April time next year. And that's the generally wow. thought of the industry. And then kind of coming out of those tiers potentially by June, July. Yeah. And have you got a Christmas brew going out this year? Uh, no, we again kind of these are the sort of things we sort of we've limited back on. We have got um, a beer of the year, right. and we, we do this every year to celebrate kind of how great the year has been. It feels very sort of um, sort of misplaced this time, and, and I guess we're now sort of. I imagine you're doing. You imagine you're doing a bitter was. for this year, then, are you? Since it's yeah, not so, been very good. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should. No, it is a <laughs> it is a pilsner, but it's been uh, it's been brewed in um, in wine barrels. All, um, it's been sitting in wine barrels all year, so it has a, a really amazing, nice um kind of almost champagne like flavor Ooh, to it okay um so yeah and what's, what's, and what's that where can you get that uh easiest place is on our website camdentownbrewery.com okay brilliant stuff uh, adam thank you very much indeed adam curie managing director of camden town brewery uh another uh, example of a decent business which the government is literally trying to ruin step by step trying to make it difficult for them to make any money at all which is entirely wrong in my view isn't it how about this from john who says, so you have become a COVID denier and you support the view we should just let the virus rip throughout the country. I take it you will not be having the vaccine either. Well, listen, John, here's the thing. Let me explain something to you. There is a difference between denying that COVID exists and understanding that COVID exists, okay? I have never denied that COVID exists. I know lots of people who have had it. I know lots of people who have suffered as a result of having it. I don't personally know anybody who has died, but I know that people have died. Of course, I'm not denying the existence of the disease, but you cannot sit there and tell me that there's only two choices. Either you deny that it exists or uh, you absolutely believe that it exists and you must shut down the entire economy as a result. That is the wrong way to think, John. And let me explain something else to you. If you have any regard for the economy of this country, you would, like me, expect people to be given the right to make a living. You would expect, like me, that the vulnerable people in this society will be protected. You would expect, like me, to have a government which is responsible not just for those people who are dying of COVID, but for everybody else in society, so that society can be successful, so that people who have put their hearts and souls and money into businesses are not completely and utterly run into the ground as a result of boneheaded, ridiculous scientists who don't seem to think that walking around is a very good idea because something might fall on you. I mean, give me a small break. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. So notwithstanding the rigours of Tier 3, which we're about to enter, John Rental has been able to join us at a very unusual time for him. Normally he comes on around about 10 o'clock, but today we thought we'll just shake things up a bit and get him on at midday uh, just for a change. Chief political commentator at The Independent. John, uh, welcome. Very good afternoon to you. Hello there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, I, I, I'm going to start with the obvious question. What the hell's going on? Well, it, the fact that we don't know, um, <laughs> I think it's a good sign, um, because it's a bit like, do you remember the tunnel that these negotiators used to go into? Oh, yes. When they were engaged in the sort of detailed uh, line by line mm. uh, thrashing out of, a, of, of, of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, first, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, which got chucked out by Parliament, and then uh, Boris Johnson's. This time, they're not talking about a tunnel, but uh, the fact that they've gone quiet suggests that they are actually 
engaged in some real nitty gritty of, uh, of negotiations. I think they, uh, they'll do a deal, as I think I said to you before, mm. I think all the posturing about how terrible it is and how a no deal outcome is, is the most likely uh, thing to happen. I think all that is, is just a negotiating tactic. I think both sides are desperate to do a deal. They just need to find the form of words that they can agree on. Right. Because, I mean, the last thing I think I read yesterday said that the team was staying in Brussels to continue the negotiations. But then I didn't read anything else. So I assumed that either they'd come back or they were still there. Because um, you can only have two outcomes, really, can't you? But, I mean, I think you're right. <laughs> Clearly, I mean, Boris is, is operating this kind of, you know, from afar business of, uh, you know, trying to make out that if there is a deal, uh, it will be a last minute deal. If there is no deal, it will be their fault. Yeah, I mean, as, as far as I know, they're still there and they are still still talking. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've heard hopeful signs from the uh, from the EU side. Uh, and there was a bit of a kerfuffle yesterday. But I mean, that was just a sort of briefing uh, mix up where the prime minister's uh, spokesman said that a no deal outcome was possible, which sounded rather different from what the prime minister was saying. Yeah, it was very likely. Uh, but then the uh, a, a different spokesman for the prime minister uh, got on the line and said, "No, no, the situation hasn't changed." So you know, number ten is still trying to sell pessimism, gloom, and uh, despair. Uh, I think in the hope of being able to pull uh, pull a deal out of the bag fairly late in the day, maybe maybe not even this week. I mean, it could it could be next week. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not as if they have to manufacture pessimism, doom and despair, is it? Because, I mean, that's how we're all feeling about the rest of the, uh, the world at the moment. So, you know, they can just go <laughs> along with that uh, rather than actually uh, pretending that, uh, that things are worse than they really are. Because in the end, um, I think people are now so fed up with the whole Brexit argument um, that even people uh, who are sort of, you know... Um, really, really massive Ramonas are kind of just going, Let's, can we just move on now, you know? <laughs> no, 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 no. If, uh, speaking as a professional uh, massive Ramona myself, I mean, I think... Uh, <laughs> You're not I, giving I think, up. I think the Ramona media will find lots and lots to complain about. Well, do you know what? I was talking to somebody who knows an awful lot about these things yesterday, um, and he was saying that, you know, it's all very well um, with the government going on about how, you know, more or less the entire deal has been done apart from three things, because the three things that haven't yet been done are the three most important things, <laughs> i.e. the fishing, you know, the uh, uh, the internal markets bill uh, and the level playing field. You know, without those three things, the rest of it doesn't matter a fag end. Yeah, no, that's right. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's quite important that all the rest has been done, because I think that means that there is a text which is more or less ready to go. They just have to they just have to slot in the final uh, paragraphs about mm. those about those three things yeah. that you would. Um, which means that it can. I mean, un unfortunately, that means it can actually be left to the last minute. It could it could go right up to the wire? I suspect. I mean, I I suspect there's a huge element in all this of politicians not wanting to have to be negotiating uh, this stuff over. Christmas itself. Yes. So I think it's quite an incentive for them to get it done before Christmas. But I mean, that does mean it could run into quite late next week. Well, yes, because surely Parliament needs to scrutinise the bill, doesn't it? I mean, in the end, just in no, terms of, uh, of, act of actual practicalities, if it was to come in, say, on the 23rd of December and they said, well, you've got two hours to have a quick look before you go back to your constituencies. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that the way it's going to be? That is probably how it's going to be, Mike, actually, uh, because, I mean, technically, in, in, legally, 
Parliament doesn't have to uh, ratify the deal. Uh, the government can do that uh, itself. Uh, but Parliament does actually have to pass uh, some legislation to to put the deal into practice mm. before the uh, before the first of January. Now that is that is going to be um, the, the the well, it's not a hold up because uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the uh, the parliament, sort of parliamentary business manager for Boris Johnson, uh, has just given an interview where he suggests that he would ideally like six days to get that legislation scrutinised by Parliament, but it could be mm. much shorter. And we saw with with all that extraordinary constitutional toing and froing over Brexit in the in the uh, deadlocked Parliament uh, before the last election, how quickly Parliament can actually pass primary legislation if it wants to. Right. And what about the whole kind of um, January the 1st deadline or December the 31st, whichever way you wish to put it? Um, that, I mean, like every other deadline, presumably is uh, a little bit liquid because every <laughs> single other deadline we've ever had has been a deadline that we have not bothered uh, paying any attention to. Somebody actually tweeted the other day, perhaps we should just reinvent uh, the definition of the word deadline. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's not, it's not helpful to suggest that that 1st of January is not a real deadline uh, because that will just give the politicians an incentive to, uh, to, to run over it. I mean, it is, a, it, it is a much more serious deadline in the sense that it is written into an, an international treaty, namely the withdrawal agreement, which means that if, uh, if, a, if a deal isn't done by then, uh, then we're out uh, of the single market mm. with, with, no, uh, with no terms. Um, so there is, there is a hard deadline uh, in the sense that it can only be extended by another international treaty. Yeah. Uh, the business of getting an international treaty uh, approved um, does take a little bit of time, mm. um, even though you know that can all be compressed, uh, you know, absolutely amazingly uh, into into a few hours. Right. I mean, but the, the 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 sticking point is always going to be the European Parliament. They have to uh, they have to approve it all. Uh, luckily, they're meeting uh, they're meeting remote and voting remotely, so they'll be able yes. to do that. Well, funnily enough, I heard their um, deputy president, I think, who's a Green Party person from from Germany called Heidi, somebody or other. I can't remember her last name because I don't feel as if I ever should have to remember it. Uh, she apparently <laughs> said she apparently said that uh, they would be willing to come back between Christmas and New Year, if necessary, uh, to ratify the agreement. Uh, and she also <laughs> said she didn't care what the agreement was, because as long as the negotiators negotiated it, uh, they would be happy to sign it off, which struck me as a bit that odd. Is that is, in effect, uh, what what's happening. And when she says she's happy to come back, what she means is she's happy to to get on uh, get on her laptop and get on Zoom. Uh, connect with Zoom to uh, you know. Can you imagine? To, right? Isn't it great? Here we are uh, with one of the biggest constructs of modern political history ending in a Zoom call. Great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, every, everything else is on. I mean, if that so doesn't why? tell you that 2020 has been a very odd year, then I don't think anything else does, really. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, uh, on the other hand, there are quite a lot of MEPs who are kicking off a bit about mm. uh, uh, about the idea that they're expected just to nod it through on Zoom at the last minute uh, and take it all as uh, as, as gospel yeah. just because the, uh, the European Commission has, has, has negotiated it. So there is a bit of tension. I mean, there was some there, there were some stories around yesterday about some of the MEPs suggesting that they wouldn't agree with it and they would uh, they would just let us uh, let us leave without a deal 
um, for a few for a few days or a few weeks while they uh, took their sweet time to, to consider it. But I don't think that is the official position of any of the parties. No. The, uh, I mean, if we did there. end up, John, with um, a no-deal scenario, on the 1st of January, um, as the French fishing fleet sort of heads up towards the coast of Grimsby, uh, what happens then? <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, I don't know if they observe bank holidays in, in, in France. So <laughs> they, may, wait until the, wait, they may wait until January the 2nd. But, uh, you know, what, what happens then is that we could get into, uh, uh, into a tussle with, uh, you know, Icelandic Cod War mm. uh, scenes. Yeah, I remember British... that. I used to enjoy those when I was younger, the old Cod yeah, Wars. Yeah, exactly. the, the thing about the Cod War, though, actually, Mike, is that we lost it fairly comprehensively. Well, listen... So, Listen, there's always another chance, you know, and you know we can we can we can puff our chests out and wave a union flag, and away you go, and we can maybe win these ones. Well, uh, well, we would have uh, we would have the law on our side uh, in in that situation, but I think people would actually at that point be more focused on the on the lorry queues that will be uh, growing, uh, not not just queues in Kent, but the queues of lorries to get into Kent because yeah. they'll need a Kent access passport. Will Kent still be in tier three, is my question. Uh, probably. <laughs> I mean, life has become so ridiculous, right? That I don't care whether there are lorry queues. I really couldn't care less whether the ferries run. You know, if they tell me at Ocado that they can't bring me any, you know, lamb, mince or cheese, I won't care about that either. I think this is where we are now. We've now lived through this sort of horrendous year of nonsense that actually, you know, Brexit and what may or may not happen is of no consequence whatsoever. <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't think you can dismiss it that light. Well, I can. I mean, look at what we've been going through. I mean, I had to find, you know, I've got all sorts of accounts now with various different wine se uh, sellers because I couldn't get any uh, deliveries back in March and April. So I sort of signed up to all these various different companies that can now <laughs> deliver me cases of wine. You know, you know, life has well, changed dramatically. Uh, well, I have. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, the main, the main thing about lockdown, I couldn't get any um, strong wholemeal flour for my bread maker right. uh, for, for, for months on end. Um, so, you know, if, if Brexit um, means that that's not available anymore, then I shall be, I shall be very worried. But, but I, no, guess, I guess what my, 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 my larger point, John, is that we're, we're all a lot more um, kind of prepared, if you like, for things not working terribly well. Because up up to up to March of this year, we were all very cosseted and we were all very spoiled, and we expected to be able to snap you know snap our fingers and get what we wanted. We now know that that's not the way the world works anymore because of all sorts of reasons. And so now, if you can't get your your, your wholemeal bread uh, made because you can't get the flour, if you can't get your fly spray, if you can't get a battery for your car, you know you just adapt and get on with it. Well, yeah, I mean, people are prepared to put up with that kind of thing as long as they think it's temporary. Yeah. I think that's the that's the real. Yeah, um, and I think and I think that's what it will be. I mean, if there is a problem, and the government has now started telling people, unbelievably, in my view, that you know there might be a few problems after all this, um, that that you know people will consider it to be temporary. Yeah, well, and I think, but I think that you know, when come the summer next year, when uh, when we have vaccines and you know we can open up the economy. I think people will want to go back to how it was before. Um, and the real cost of Brexit is, is obviously not going to be the short-term disruption. It's going to be the long-term um, economic disadvantage. And I think, uh, I think that will take years, if not decades, 
to sort of seep into the public consciousness. I mean, you've got to remember when we when we joined the the, the, the common market, as it was then called. Mm. I mean, that, partly because we felt we were falling behind the rest of Europe. Uh, now we haven't felt that recently, but uh, you know, if we do, well, start we still to have like, a better economic growth figure than almost every other country in Europe. We still have a lower unemployment uh, figure than most other countries in Europe. We are, in in many ways, economically superior to most of the countries in the European Union, particularly those which are poorer. So I, 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 I don't share your pessimism about that. I think actually uh, we're in pretty good shape, aren't we? Yeah, no, but I think that's true. But I think that's one of the reasons why. Uh, people were prepared to contemplate leaving the EU right. because we, they felt that, you know, we didn't need the EU to be a modern uh, go-ahead economy anymore. But if we start to fall fall back as a result of Brexit, as we will inevitably uh, suffer some long-term damage because we will be making our trade with the world's biggest single market more difficult, then I think attitudes may start to change. But I mean, Well, that we is won't be, though. I mean, that depends on your point of view, doesn't it? I mean, you believe that because, as you say, you are a self-confessed massive Ramona. Um, however, <laughs> there are plenty of other people who will tell you that actually that's absolutely not a tosh. And in fact, we will be in a much better position because we can do trade deals with other countries which are not restricted anymore uh, by the mass of the other 27. No, well, I'm not a, I'm not a massive Ramona. You said you were. Um, yeah, I mean, I was I was making fun of the fact that I work for the Independent, which obviously yeah, well, uh, that's a very that is a very funny uh, newspaper, um, but that's another <laughs> story. I don't wish to to pour score on it for this height. As I've always said to you, I've, I've always been an extremely reluctant remo- remainer, mm. um, and I do respect the case for leaving, and I think the referendum uh, should be should be should be implemented, and, and indeed has been, uh, and I think that's it. That's a good thing. Um, because that's what the people voted for. Yes. Uh, I, and I understand a, a lot of why they voted for it, but I do think this idea that we'll, we, we will prosper by uh, signing buccaneering trade deals with Uzbekistan and goodness knows where else is just for the birds. Mm. There, is a, there is an economic price to be paid for Brexit, and I, I accept you know, a lot of people were willing to pay that price, uh, and uh, that's fine. But for people who think that we're somehow going to be uh, magically more prosperous as a result of Brexit, I'm afraid they've got a, a another thing coming. Yeah, well, my, I take the view, really, um, that not, not that much will change. You know, I was asked the other day by someone, what do you think is going to happen? And I said, well, to be honest, we'll be standing here a year from now much uh, of, of what we do now will, we will still be doing. Most of the things we buy, we will still be buying. There won't be shortages of really very much of anything and life will just go on. And if, the, and if you're worried about prices going up, well, guess what? That's what they do. Prices go up all the time. And, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember decimalisation, I'm afraid, um, which you may not be. And all I remember about that was that as a child, everything in the sweet shop went up because they decided that was a good opportunity to put the prices up. And, and same, was, same goes for Brexit. That was when things started to go wrong, wasn't it, Mike? I, well, I mean, you I'm know, always, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not dewy-eyed about the pound uh, and the shilling and the florin. I'm really not. <laughs> but, you know, you're right that in the short term there won't be... Uh, the, uh, or at least in the short term there'll be disruption. In the medium term, probably people won't notice very much. But in the long term... Uh, putting obstacles in the way of trade with the European market is is not going to do us any good. I'm yeah, but afraid there but is. We won't be doing that. They'll be doing that, not not us. And that's the difference, isn't it? No, we'll be doing it because we'll be insisting. I mean, because by te- coming out of the single market and the customs union, you require checks to be done at the border. 
Uh, and that, even if it only takes 15 seconds per lorry, that is going to, that is like putting sand in the wheel of a machine. It's, it's just not, it's... It yeah, is, but, yeah it but hang on. I mean, when was the last time you crossed the channel? When was the last time yeah. I went to... Uh, when did you France, cross the England, channel? I went to the France-England uh, rugby match in Paris in February, just before the lockdown. Oh, blimey. So you're a super spreader of COVID then, in that case. What about, uh, what happened to you, right? Did you, did you get stopped as you went over the border? Yeah, I mean, my passport was checked on right. the Eurostar. Yeah. Oh, so you're on the Eurostar. Okay. So, I mean, if you go in a car, basically, you get checked at Dover, you get checked at Calais. Same when you come back. You get checked at Calais, you yeah. get checked at Dover. Same thing. Why is it any different? Yeah, but we're talking about trade, Mike. And we're talking about, you know, goods coming But they can't just let lorries go across the border without checking them, surely. And they shouldn't be doing it now. There are more, there are more checks, uh, at, at the moment, I mean, after after um, January the first, there'll be more checks that have to be. Well, I would out, say good. I'm very happy because if there's anybody clinging to the underside of the lorry, they might find them. No, they'll be checking. They'll they'll just be checking whether the uh, you know, the rules of origin have been observed yeah, yeah. and all that. Sort well, I won't say no. They won't be looking under the lorry for anyway. Well, they, 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 well, I'm sorry. They're bleeding well ought to be, in my view. <laughs> Sorry, you know, and, and, and I'm very happy that they'll be doing checks and it won't disrupt much. It won't mean that there will, uh, it will be for the first time queues on the M20 or queues at Calais. Because guess what? They've already, they've already got queues at, uh, in both of those places. No, there'll be more. There will be more uh, friction in, in our trade with the European market. I mean, that is all, that's what all the economic models show. That's what the Office for Budget Responsibility suggests that, yeah. you know, Brexit, Brexit will lead to to lower national income in this in this country because we won't be able to trade as freely as as we can now, and that is just that's just a fact. And you know, it's fine. Well, it's not a fact. It's you produced know. by those Ramona uh, civil servants who produce reports for the government, which always say that anything you do uh, which upsets the apple cart will be a bad thing. No, there, well, there are very few serious uh, economists, whether they're Ramonas or, or, or Leavers, who, who, who don't accept that there is a, an economic cost to leaving. I think you should have just left that sentence that there are very few serious economists, and I would have agreed with you. But there we are. <laughs> John, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent, uh, self-confessed massive Ramona, even though he's now denied being a massive Ramona, uh, having admitted it in the first place. Wonderful man. Thank you very much indeed. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is that time, 12.30. Uh, we've had the news a little bit after that. Uh, time to have the old homeschooling scenario. Now, uh, some of you might think, well... Uh, our kids are still at school, so we don't need to do this. But some children are home. Uh, some children have already broken up for Christmas, uh, particularly in private schools. Some children uh, may have been sent home for one reason or another. They were all going to be sent home from Greenwich this morning, uh, tonight. But it turns out now that that's been overruled by Gavin Williamson. So sorry to take such a long time to get to the point. Uh, but Tom Whipple is here, science editor at the Times, of course, uh, because he's the author of Get Ahead in Chemistry and Get Ahead in Physics. But he's got a fascinating piece uh, in the Times today uh, with a rather Splendid picture as well uh, of a dinosaur that up to now we didn't really know anything about. Ubi Rajara Jubatus, I think is the way you pronounce it. Tom, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Hello. Have I got that right, or did I sort of I was a bit stumbly over the uh, over the word? I, I was just thinking, preparing for this. One of the great things about being a print journalist is I never ever need to know how <laughs> to pronounce. I still don't. So let's agree never to use this word 
Okay. All right. I'm going to go with UJ because it's got two. Uh, it's got two initials, and that'll that'll do for me. But it says "Sexy Beast Meet the Hot Dinosaur," and your your piece, I have to say, is is absolutely uh, sort of dripping with uh, innuendo because you're basically saying that this was rather a sexy little beast uh, of a dinosaur. Tell us about what's new about it because we didn't know about it until just now. Yeah, so we think of dinosaurs as being these ferocious things that go about eating stuff. But of course, they had the, the full gamut of evolution applied to them, and they filled all of their niches. And also, we know that birds are the descendants yes. of dinosaurs. It's not too surprising to find a little dinosaur that behaves a lot like a bird. But that's what they found. And it's it's a really strange dinosaur. It's It was exquisitely fossilized. It was a very unusual fossilization where it managed to be preserved in salt and then preserved in rocks. They've got all this detail. And you can see it's got a mane that went up its back that Mm. it could lift and raise, a bit like a peacock's tail. And it's got these very strange protrusions out of its neck, a little bit like dried spaghetti coming out of its (laughs) neck. Right. I mean, it it all looks looks preposterous. But the, the... interesting thing about this is that the, we know that very strange preposterous things can happen like peacock's tails um and this tells us this is a very odd thing if you think about it to evolve a, a peacock's tail is is extremely inconvenient for a peacock trying to live its life yes and it's something called sexual selection we're used to natural selection we're used to the idea that you know you have these advantages conferred by evolution that mean you can survive better but sexual selection is just insane. It's, it's, so in peacocks, which are the classic example, at some point a peahen decided she quite liked extravagant tails. Mm. So she mated with a peacock who had an extravagant tail, and they had sons with extravagant tails who then mated with, or they then mated with more peahens. And it, this strange feedback loop where they just selected for more and more and more and more ludicrous tails. And you see it in lots of birds, and it seems we see it in this uh, UJ, the uh, this 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 small <laughs> bird-like dinosaur with the the crazy ruff and the crazy mane. And right. It's, it's this early. And it was discovered in Brazil, uh, which would suggest, I suppose, that it was part of that continent rather than part of our continent. But would it be the case that it might have been elsewhere? Well, we, the continents were in completely different places back then. Mm. Um, and they, they all, they've all come and met up and, and moved apart at different times. But there have been small things, probably like this, probably very similar, all over the world. Um, the thing about fossilization is it's, it's phenomenally rare. You know, the chances are there isn't an existing fossilized human around. If humans became extinct tomorrow, it's quite possible we'd leave no fossil evidence at all. It's very, very rare. It's only that the, the dinosaurs lived for 250 million years mm. that we have any fossilized dinosaurs at all. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite possibly, there, there will be ones doing very similar things, small, colourful, interesting, all over the world. This just happens to be one of the very few that we've found. Because mm, I was in the Isle of Wight recently, and there's a famous beach there where apparently the, you can find fossil footprints of dinosaurs, but I wasn't able to find them, and I was told the tide wasn't out sufficiently far. So, sadly, I missed that particular opportunities i'll have to go back again and check it out but i found it interesting uh, from what you said about the whole sexual selection thing because i was talking to an expert the other day about insects and apparently the stag beetle 
um, lives for quite a long time in all sorts of different kind of um, uh, metamorphoses. Is, um, and then when it becomes a stag beetle, it literally only becomes a stag beetle to mate for two weeks and then dies because it's so uh, cumbersome that it can't feed itself. And you just find yourself going, that's amazing. You're right? the Science is just incredible. There, there are lots of animals like that. There, there are cicadas that, that live underground in semi-hibernation for seven years. There are others that live right. underground for three years. And they come up for yeah, a few days, a few weeks. They don't feed. Mayflies are the same. That they, they exist. I mean, look, ultimately, and as homeschooling, ultimately, this is all about sex. That's, that's all we're about. We're about reproduction. Yeah. We are, I am an ambulatory bag of flesh designed to reproduce <laughs> the DNA inside me. But we're tragically, no for most of humans, once that's happened, then the rest of your life just disappears and dissipates down the drain, doesn't it? Well, exactly. Look, I, I, fulfill, I exist for long <laughs> enough to uh, raise my children so that they too can reproduce. Yes. But and then you're done. That's it. I can attest to that. Unless you get a job on the radio or something, you're basically you're useless. Nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody's interested in what you've got to say. Uh, and basically, you might, your life might as well be over. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, exactly. Uh, and we don't even have the uh, amazing adornments of this dinosaur to fall back on with pride. No. And this is great news, I suppose, as well, for those who like to make the connection between the bird community as it now is. And because it's got a very bird-like sort of beak, hasn't it? It doesn't look like a dinosaur, really. It looks, the rest of its body does, but its head looks just like a bird's head. Yeah, it does. I mean, it, if you watch a chicken walking, you can imagine the noble Tyrannosaurus Rex mm. that you see. You really can see in, in the gait and the stride of these of these animals, um, you, you, you really can see the dinosaurs that they were. And we found feathers fossilizing dinosaurs. This has been one of the big revolutions of the past 20 years, the realization that they weren't just these lizard-like things, that actually they, they formed the sort of animals we see today. And mm. they look very, it's called convergent evolution. Um, and, and, you know, then, then they did survive. The dinosaurs did survive, but they just survived as birds. Yes. And the word you, you, you use a lot in this piece is theropod. What, is, what, is, what does that mean, theropod? It's a particular group of um, dinosaurs that, that sort of stood on two legs okay. and that looked, looked a little bit like a chicken without, without wings or, or feathers um, and could be a lot bigger uh, and could be quite ferocious and, um, and, and eat things. Nice. Very good. Well, very interesting, as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Whipple, science editor at The Times, a man that's always got something interesting to say, uh, regardless of what I told him earlier about the mating process. Um, because it is true, though, uh, most sort of animals um, have this kind of um, reason to be, which is basically to mate, uh, to produce young and offspring, and then to raise them so that they can do the same. That's what happens, I'm afraid. Uh, luckily for us, However, uh, we have higher uh, and much more mighty things to do. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.